Good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. No baby yet. I sent this to a couple people this morning. I had never really thought about this until the last couple weeks. First of all, again, I think probably a lot of guys are like this, just how little we know. Um, hopefully, hopefully, I won't go on into the details. Carrie had a doctor's appointment this past week, and something that she said made me think, does that mean we're having it like right now? And uh, we did not, obviously. But, um, but it's, uh, I had never thought about how, at this point, when it can happen any moment, it's kind of stressful. Uh, and I keep thinking, I hope he doesn't come at like 10 o'clock at night, like after I've been up all day. Um, but, 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 but we're excited for whatever, uh, whenever he comes, and definitely appreciate your prayers. Exodus chapter 8 is where we'll be this morning, and we'll actually look at the last verse of chapter 7 into chapter 8. And we're talking about the entire chapter. I'm going to read an excerpt from it this morning because this message got pretty long. And whenever I mention that, somebody inevitably says, oh, don't worry, you can always preach a longer sermon. And I appreciate that, but I just feel like I have to rein myself in to some degree. So we'll read an excerpt from chapter 8 before we get into the passage. Chapter 7, verse 25 says, Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile... Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, and over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt." Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs may be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, Tomorrow. Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps. And the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, and that it points us to you, it points us to truth, and that it ultimately points us to your gospel. And we pray for our time in your word today. Lord, I pray for this church that we be a people who are 
enamored with your greatness and grace and glory and goodness, Lord. I pray for our time in this message today, in this word today, that we would be pointed to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Obviously, continuing in Exodus this morning, in the book of Exodus, God had chosen to redeem the Israelites from Egyptian slavery, but when the king of Egypt refuses to let the Israelites go, the Lord brings a series of plagues upon Egypt. Last week, we looked at the first of the ten plagues. Today, as we cover chapter 8, we look at the next three plagues. And for most of the month of October, Lord willing, we'll be looking at these sections in Exodus. And with that brief introduction, we're going to jump right back into the text this morning. And as I said, we'll look at the second, third, and fourth plagues, which are all found in chapter 8. So beginning with the second plague, frogs. Chapter 7 ends with the first plague, where the Lord turns the waters of the Nile River red. And the last verse of chapter 7 says, Seven full days passed after the Lord struck the Nile. So it gives us a little bit of an indication of time. Now, we don't have those notes for all of the plagues. Someone last week asked me a very good question. How long did this whole thing take? We don't know for certain. Jewish tradition holds that the ten plagues lasted for about a year. Some scholars believe it was several months. But ultimately, we don't know for sure. But even if it was a few months, considering how these were wreaking havoc on everyday life, it probably felt like a much longer period of time. So, examining the second plague, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, the Lord sends Moses again to warn Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. Next, the conditions of the plague are noted. Verses 3 and 4. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. So in the first plague, we saw the Nile itself as the source of where the plague would strike. Here, the plague will be something that comes from the Nile River. And as a reminder, the Nile was the lifeblood of Egyptian life. They depended on it for their drinking water. It was the source of their water for agriculture. Egypt gets very little rainfall. The main source of river water from the Nile comes from further south in Africa. Waters during the monsoon season flood and flow up north into Egypt. And so the first two plagues come from the waters of the river. And Pharaoh is told that these frogs will be everywhere, a swarm of frogs. And the word swarm in the Hebrew is the same word that's used in Genesis 1 in creation. Example, Genesis 1.20. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And in the plagues, there's actually a lot of language that refers back to creation. 
Because for the Egyptians and for Pharaoh, in their rebellion, the plagues are an uncreation. The passage says that they'll be in Pharaoh's bedroom, on his bed, and in the homes of his people. Even their ovens and kneading bowls will have frogs just hopping out of them. It's almost comical. Probably wasn't for the Egyptians and the Israelites, but everywhere you look, there's just frogs hopping around, ribbiting. It's significant that the text mentions also that the frogs will be in Pharaoh's bedroom. The two Hebrew words which are used that the ESV translates as bedroom are found together only five times in the Old Testament. And in four of the five instances, including in this passage this morning, it's a passage that's talking about the vulnerability of a king, even in his own bedroom, a place you would think would be secure and protected as any place in the kingdom would be. But even the place where the king sleeps is under threat. Pharaoh might be the king. He might have a lot of political power and societal power. But he's ultimately still a man. What's the thing that makes you feel most secure? It's really amazing how quickly the facades of the things that give us our security can be gone. I was reading an article this week about female judges in Afghanistan and the danger that they are in. And how quickly, in a few weeks, their lives have been totally turned upside down. On the run, in hiding, in mortal danger, their families are in danger, their bank accounts have been frozen, they're totally dependent upon others right now for their survival, for their sustenance. Security can be taken away. Some of us rely on our money. Money can be taken away. I have a relative who was the CEO, I'm sorry, the CFO, Chief Financial Officer for a company that the CEO had embezzled money from. I'm not an expert on corporate laws, but the CFO can be financially liable for things that a CEO does. This relative hadn't done anything personally illegal. In fact, the CEO ended up going to prison for what he had done because he was the one who intentionally, willfully embezzled money. But my relative, when he died, most of his assets were taken. You can lose your money. For some, that's where our hope is, and it can be taken away. For some, our health can be what we rely on and trust on. I remember starting a restaurant job a few years ago when I was at Trinity, and on our first day, they had like a little questionnaire that we fill out just asking you know, questions about us, and one of the questions was something along the lines of, what's the most important thing to you? And I said, my faith. And the general manager of the restaurant also filled out the questionnaire so we could get to know him. And he's somebody who had a wife and kids and said that the most important thing to him was nutrition. I thought, priorities. You can be the healthiest person in the world. You can do everything right, and you can still get cancer. The person who popularized jogging as a fitness activity in the 1980s died of a heart attack while jogging. That's why I don't run. <laughs> I think of powerful people. I've always been struck, as somebody who enjoys history, I've always been struck by the thought of Ronald Reagan's post-presidency as he was dealing with the 
horrible effects of Alzheimer's disease. And I've always thought of what that would have been like to see him from the perspective of his family and his Secret Service agents. That you're interacting with a man who had been the most powerful man in the world, but who was ailing and aging and undoubtedly came to a point where he didn't even remember the historic and impactful life that he had led. No matter how powerful a person is, they still die. Life is fleeting. And whatever you want to put your security in, if it's not the Lord, we will lose it. It will not sustain us. It will not protect us. It's interesting because we live in a time where there's so much we can seem to control. So much of human history has been a battle against the elements, a battle against warfare. But in the comfort of our own homes, we can decide the temperature. We're safe. Our basic needs are met. We have modern medicine. We aren't starving to death. We have options over entertainment. We have mobility and freedom about where we choose to live. Something else that's been an exception throughout much of human history. We have options about our employment. We, are, we aren't serfs. We aren't bound to be somewhere. We have so many options and choices in our society. And so it's easy to feel like we have so much control of our own lives. And it's easy to look at all of our forms of security we surround ourselves with. Yet life is so fragile that all of us can have our worlds turned upside down at any moment by a phone call about someone we love or about our own health or an accident happening that totally changes the trajectory of our life. None of us are above that. And the one constant, the one thing that you're guaranteed to have if you believe in God is a faithful God. And so let us as Christians not forget that God is all that we ultimately need. In Psalm 46, the psalmist says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the hearts of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Later on, he says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. And finally, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Everything can be collapsing. But nothing apart from the Lord is ultimately meant to sustain us. And so Pharaoh is warned that even in his own room, in his own sanctuary, the frogs will be there because they'll be everywhere. And verse 5 Moses is told by the Lord to tell Aaron to stretch his staff over the waters and the frogs will inundate the land. Something that perhaps added insult to injury is that the Egyptians believed in a fertility goddess called Heket. Picture here. That's from a hieroglyph. This is a more modern depiction. She was an Egyptian fertility goddess who had the body of a woman and the head of a frog. And it's ironic when you remember back in chapter 1 of Exodus, Pharaoh had ordered the midwives to kill the newborn Israelite males. And then he had ordered the midwives to throw them in the river. And so this is almost a mockery of, Egypt's, of the 
Egyptians' own fertility goddess, and that the land is being overwhelmed by frogs coming from the river, the same river where Pharaoh had meant to drown the Israelite males. Continuing in our passage. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Now we've previously seen this at other times in Exodus, that Pharaoh's magicians, his wise men, his probably their priestly figures, were able to recreate the signs. We don't know how. For the first plague when the Nile River was turned to blood and the, the magici magicians also did the same thing to the water, Pharaoh seemed to use that as a justification to not believe in the miracle he had just witnessed. And for the second plague, the magicians once again are able to somehow recreate it. But in verse 8, Pharaoh's response is striking. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Even though his magicians could do the same thing, he realizes that there is divine power at work. And he tells Moses to plead with God to take the frogs away and say that, says that he will allow the Egyptians to leave and to make sacrifices. Just as a reminder, at the beginning of Exodus chapter 5, when Pharaoh is first given the command to release the Israelites, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. But here, Pharaoh is finally forced to acknowledge the power of God even after his magicians had done the same miracle. Because the fact that the magicians can copy the miracle is not as important as the fact that they cannot undo the miracle. God shows his power in Exodus just as much from his ability to stop the plagues as he does from his ability to start them. Verse 9. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. So Pharaoh has just told Moses to ask God to make it stop. And Moses is like, Just say when. God is that powerful. Moses and Aaron bring this before the Lord, and the plague ceases. Yet Pharaoh does not uphold his end of the bargain. Verse 15. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh reneges on the deal. It's the first time that he does this in the plagues, but it will not be the last. Third plague. Gnats. Verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. No warning on this plague. In the first two plagues, Pharaoh had been warned, but after he reneges on his promise to free the Israelites, he is immediately stricken with this third plague. A couple things to note. The least amount of biblical space 
is given to this third plague. It's the first plague that does not involve water. Instead, Aaron is instructed to take his staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. We again see creation language. In creation, God makes man from the dust of the earth. When he makes his covenant promise with Abraham, he promises in Genesis 13, 6, that his offspring will be so numerous that they will be like the dust of the earth. But in the plagues, God makes gnats from the dust of the earth. In this plague, we see a difference of ecosystem. No longer does the plague come from the water, but from the dust of the earth. Something else to consider. The ESV and most English translations use the word gnats. It's also the word that the earliest Greek translations of the Old Testament used, which predate Jesus. So those go back quite a ways. King James uses the word lice. In the Hebrew, there can be different meanings of what that word is. It's some sort of small, winged creature that causes a nuisance. And bugs can be a nuisance. And whatever these bugs are, it probably does not help that the frogs are dead and the fish in the river are dead who would normally help to control the insect populations. I think of when Carrie and I used to live in Minnesota. It's a land of 10,000 lakes. There's a joke in Minnesota that the state bird of Minnesota is the mosquito. The county that we lived in by itself had over 1,000 lakes. Water was everywhere, which meant in the summertime, mosquitoes were everywhere. And they could be unbearable. It's the only place I've ever lived where you could wear a long sleeve shirt and get bitten through your clothing by a mosquito. You get late in the summertime in Minnesota, you know, early July. No, it's not that. You get late in the summertime in Minnesota, and you come to days where you start hoping for cold just to kill them off. It can be absolutely brutal. Insects are a nuisance. There's a famous baseball game that happened in 2007 between the Cleveland Indians and the New York Yankees. It was a playoff game, game two of the American League Division Series. In the eighth inning, the Yankees were leading one to nothing, and a swarm of midges, which are another small, non-biting, mosquito-like insect, flew off of Lake Erie into the baseball stadium. They swarmed the pitcher's mound, they had to pause the game to spray down players with bug spray. But there's video, and I was actually going to show the clip of it, but I didn't have the expressed written consent of Major League Baseball. But there's video that you can find of Jabba Chamberlain, who was the Yankees pitcher at the time, and he's trying to throw, and he's got just all of these bugs around him. And it obviously rattled him, and totally, because he couldn't throw strikes. The Yankees ended up losing that game in extra innings and losing the series, fortunately. But infestations of bugs can be incredibly disruptive. And in other parts of the world, even today, there's examples that are far worse than the couple examples I've just given. Bugs can be serious. In an exodus from the dust of the earth, we see this miraculous sign of an infestation of gnats. 
verse 17. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. So the plagues are now affecting both people and animals. Something else that's important to keep in mind. These first three plagues are also impacting the Israelites. They're a judgment against Egypt, but the Israelites are also dealing with them. In Matthew 5.45, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It rains on the saint and the sinner. Now, in later plagues, God will start to spare Israel. But there's no promise in life that Christians, as Christians, we are insulated from the same difficulties of the rest of the world. Christians also live in places where there are natural disasters. We aren't in a bubble and protected from them. Christians get the same diseases that the rest of the world gets. Christians face the same job layoffs that other people face. Christians suffer injustice, abuse, assault, death. Because even though we are God's people and we are righteous in Christ, and redeemed because of the gospel, the world is still fallen. In Romans chapter 8, verses 22 and 23, the apostle Paul says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grow in, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The impact of sin is cosmic and global. But as we said in our first point, the bedrock of our lives is meant to be God. The cynical person looks at the faithful person who suffers and calls them a fool for their faith. Asks why they believe in a God who wouldn't spare them from various sufferings. But the person of true faith knows that the greatest thing that God can give is himself. And that though we live in a fallen world, that we have God. We have his promises. We have the means of communication with him through prayer. We have the means of experiencing and growing with him through the Holy Spirit. We have the opportunity to serve him through his church. We have the opportunity to worship him and enjoy fellowship we have the opportunity to live abundantly in him. So yes, because the world is fallen, we are affected by that. But because we have God, we can overcome that. Because God is greater than our circumstances, and he's greater than our challenges. I touched on this when talking about the second plague, but we feel like we have so much control over our lives. And a concern that I have is that it can make us feel like circumstances are king. But one of the things that truly befuddles the world is that sometimes the times of the greatest struggle, the greatest suffering, the greatest pain, the greatest need can be the times where we have the greatest experience of God and knowing him. And so through these plagues, these first three plagues, 
The Israelites are exposed to the same difficulties as the Egyptians. Verse 18. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. This is the first of the, <clears throat> this is the, first of the plagues that the magicians are not able to recreate. As Pharaoh comes to the edges of acknowledging God, so too must the magicians. But that doesn't mean that they become believers. We can know something that's true about God, but that doesn't mean that we're a follower of him or a follower of Christ. God does not want vague acknowledgement. He wants committed followers who believe and trust in Jesus. These passages don't give us a, you can believe what you want to believe, and I'll believe what I want to believe, and we don't really know which one is right. They don't give us a, all roads lead to God perspective. They don't give us a, all religions basically teach the same thing perspective. There is truth, and there is falsity. We come to the fourth plague, flies. Something that's noteworthy is that when you look back to the second plague, ultimately, it says that the frogs died. The text never tells us that the third plague ends. So it's possible that as these other plagues are happening, that they're still being pestered by these gnats. So we come to flies. The third plague, gnats had been brought on without warning. But with the fourth plague, Pharaoh is warned again. Similar to the first plague, Moses is told to get up early in the morning and go to Pharaoh and warn him. The end of verse 20 through verse 23 says, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go that they may serve me, or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. Again, Pharaoh is told to let the people go so that they can serve the Lord. Swarms of flies is the threatened plague. Similar to the previous plagues, the word flies in the Hebrew can refer to more than one creature. I think when we hear flies, we think of house flies. That's possible. And a plague of house flies would be miserable. I don't know how much a plague of house flies is. Really, one fly flying around is, to me, kind of a plague of, unto itself. We were in our study last Sunday night, there was a fly buzzing around, and the nicest people in the world can go just onto a mission to kill when there's a fly. Others have suggested various types of beetles might have been what's in mind. The Greek translation associated with this word refers to a, uh, a type of dog fly that's in Egypt that is a uh, pretty nasty creature that bites and sucks blood. 
possibly that's what it's referring to. In any event, it's once again something that is an incredible nuisance. It's something else to keep in mind with these fl- plagues of flies and gnats is that they're not living in like really well sealed up and insulated houses in ancient Egypt the way that we do today. A few unique features about the fourth plague. It's noteworthy that the first two plagues come from water. The third plague is the dust of the earth that is used to create gnats. The fourth plague is flies. So we have water, earth, and now air. God has used these classical elements to exact judgment and show his divine power. It's also noteworthy that in these last two plagues, the Lord has been working through smaller means. We saw it with the gnats, and we see it here with the flies. The Lord can use the big things such as weather and nature, but he's also powerful over the small things. He's God at the macro level and the micro level. This plague highlights the power of God and that he can localize the plagues. It's also the first plague where the Israelites are spared. I talked in the last plague about how God's people suffer as the rest of the world suffers. And to this point, to this point the Israelites had. But God here shows us favor for the Israelites by sparing them and their lands from this and all subsequent plagues. It shows his grace. It's not merited or deserved by Israel, but God is gracious to them. And it shows that the Lord has a distinct people for himself. It's a theme throughout the Bible. There's a people of God. and the Old Testament, we rightly associate that with Israel. Although, even if you read Exodus, there are people who become part of the people of God who are not Israelites who still join in the Exodus. In the New Testament, we have a Savior who has grace that is less focused on one nation and is extended through his followers, through the gospel, to reach all the nations of the world, people of every tribe and tongue and nation. And so the Israelites are spared from the wrath of this plague and the ones going forward. For this plague... It doesn't even make reference to Pharaoh's magicians attempting to duplicate it. Pharaoh is ready to make a deal with Moses in verse 25. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. Now, if you're not paying close attention, it can seem like Pharaoh is giving them what they want. But he isn't. Pharaoh was called to surrender and to allow the Israelites into the wilderness to worship the Lord. But he tries to negotiate. He tries to bargain. says that they can worship within the land of Egypt. Sometimes we can try to hold back from God. Sometimes when God is asking us to give up something, or when God is asking us to do something, we want to play games and negotiate. What do we do when the Lord is calling us to something that's difficult, when we're challenged? Do you have an area in your life right now where you're holding back from God? And it might be different things for different people. It might be something with how you use your time. But you would have less time for another activity or hobby that you enjoy. It might be investing in a relationship with someone. 
to serve them or to share the good news with them and to really be part of their life. But justifying that you don't have time or assuming they've probably heard the gospel or fear that they might think you're weird or assuming that they wouldn't even want to talk about that or any other number of excuses of why we could hold back from wanting to reach someone. There can be something that you felt God calling to you for a while, and yet you keep holding back. Pharaoh was certainly very far from God. He couldn't bring himself to surrender to God. But so often, even as Christians, we struggle to do that too. Pharaoh offers that the Israelites can make sacrifices in his land. Verses 26 and 27, Moses explains why that wouldn't be right. They're in Egypt. They need to be ultimately obedient to what the Lord commanded. And it would also be an offense to the Egyptians to do their religious practices in the land of Egypt. The final five verses of the chapter, I didn't make a slide for this, says, So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But... Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Once again, as we saw in the second plague, Pharaoh says that the Egyptians will be permitted to leave, but when the plague is lifted, he reneges on the deal. And so the cycle continues. He has paid dearly and suffered greatly but there will be much more pain to come as Pharaoh continues to resist the Lord. A plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, a plague of flies. As I close, I have this simple thought in looking over the plagues of Exodus. It's amazing to consider the love that the Lord has for his people and the great lengths he goes to in order to redeem the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. God turned the world upside down to free his people. And on the cross, Jesus turns heaven upside down to redeem us. In Exodus, we see the lengths that God went to in order to free Israel. And on the cross, we see God's only son dying so that all who believe in him can be redeemed. We see Jesus himself the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, giving up his life so that we could have life. So as we study these passages, I hope that they're edifying. I hope that they're interesting. I hope that they're informative. But more than anything else, I pray that they can be pointing us to the tremendous love that God has always had for his people. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we again thank you so much for your goodness and grace. Lord, you are the eternal God. You are the God of Egypt, 
of the Israelites in Egypt so many thousands of years ago today, through time to the Roman Empire and your son, through time to today and everything in between. Lord, you are our God. May we praise you and glorify you and grow and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen.